Chapter 8, Part 4 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Coaching Through the North Island of New Zealand, Its Hot Lakes and Geysers, Part 4. Thursday, October 3rd. We left Taupo in the coach at six the next morning, driving for some miles along the shore of the lake. To our right we saw the high conical peak of Tongariro, from whose crater forever issues a black cloud of smoke, and a little further on the mountain of Tuahara, the lone lover of the Maoris, and Mount Ruahepo. The whole range of mountains were covered with the purest snow, and so veiled in clouds that the summits often peeped out from above or mingled with the low-lying clouds. All through the morning we were driving through an intensely dreary stretch of pumice country, and on whichever side you looked there was nothing but the coarse yellow grass tufted with raupo, nothing but wide expanses of wiwi or mata or toe-toe grass, mingled with clumps of formium tenax, the flax plant of New Zealand. This plant has a broad, sword-like rush, and flowers either a dark red or pale yellow. It grows in swamps on marshy places to a height of from four to eight feet. The fiber is used for rope, but unfortunately it rots with damp, and experiments prove that it is only reliable when mixed with other fibers. Every now and again we came upon a little stream forming a green strip amid the yellow desert by the Hanea or watercress growing along its banks, but the dreariness of those endless miles of pumice country, only limited in their vastness by low mountain ranges, I shall never forget. The only object of interest was to watch and trace the windings of our road away among the yellow tufts. The coach was miserably horsed. Two speckled horses with a pony and a mule for the leaders formed a very weedy team. At the first hill we came to, they began jibbing, not from vice, but from sheer inability to drag the coach with its heavy load of eight passengers up the hill, and these were the horses that were to take us fifty miles before the day was over. We were terribly packed both inside and out, and were all glad to walk as much as possible. The coach was of a very ancient date, and swung on leathern straps in place of springs. There were no doors or windows, but old yellow leather curtains that rolled up. The top of the roof in front was ornamented with three black lanterns, resembling a Prince of Wales feathers, that produced a most hearst-like effect from a distance. The poles of the telegraph wires kept us company, disappearing occasionally to take some shortcut. We saw no pale-faced dwelling all day, and only passed three or four Maori settlements. It was pointed out to me how, for some unknown reason, the door in the ware is always back or front and never at the side. At one of these settlements we saw a cart with a man on horseback in charge of the body of a dead chief, which was lying wrapped in a piece of sacking at the bottom. He was taking it thirty miles away to be buried by the tribe of the deceased. We had luncheon, stopping for an hour in the middle of the pumice plain by a stream that watered the horses. Late in the afternoon, we found ourselves serpenting along the edge of a magnificent gorge. 
it was so deep and straightly precipitous that we could not see the stream which we heard brawling at the bottom of the ravine we were soon enjoying one of the downward rushes so pleasant after the weary crawling uphill with the coach groaning and creaking and making but little progress i think the team enjoyed it as much as we did for they galloped away with the coach at their heels hardly slackening at the sharp curves in the zigzag roads it was pleasurable excitement mingled with terror we were getting impatient and anxious to arrive at our night's shelter for the sun had set the air was growing chill around us and the gorges darkening into impenetrable gloom over the hill we saw the lurid light of a fire with tongues of flame shooting up and showing momentarily the darkened patches left by its devastating work rounding the corner the beautiful vision of a golden zigzag of lines of flame met us swept by the wind in ever-varying brightness up and down the hillside the only three miles more of griffith the driver were becoming six as we found ourselves in the dark and about to ascend another long hill the wheels locked at a sudden sharp turn and we all bundled out of the coach and then walked taking short cuts up the winding road the moon came up and we ended by sliding down a bank of white sand that glistened under the rays of the moon on to the road and walking on until griffith overtook us just in time to save his reputation and prevent our arriving on foot at the inn at tarawera we were to sleep in this beautiful valley hemmed in by mountains that would keep their watch over us through the long night hours how romantic and charming it sounded and what prosaic discomfort there was in the reality the inn consisted of one living-room where the village smoked and drank a ladder staircase led it to a loft roughly partitioned off into bedrooms where every sound through the whole length of the passage could be heard seven men with their collie dogs driving sheep from auckland to napier arrived after us and had to be accommodated so the gentlemen slept that night three in one room i am bound to say that these small inns are perfectly clean and that the fare if homely is substantial there is always a good joint of meat and the beef in new zealand is the best i have ever eaten with vegetables and bread and cheese or sometimes a more ambitious attempt in the way of jam tartlets or rice pudding but it seems quite extraordinary that there should be no cows in villages where there is such an abundance of rich pasture and that we should find everywhere in use the anglo-swiss condensed and tinned butter the next morning we were on the road again by six a m and in the midst of the grand mountain scenery of the previous night it was one succession of toiling up mountains for three hours to rush down on them on the other side in half an hour in the course of the day we crossed no less than two distinct ranges the hukio uni or great head and the manyaharoguru or rumbling mountains it was weary work this crawling up the side of these each zigzag bringing us so many feet higher up to lose again by the descent that we had but just so painfully gained one scene among many others impressed itself vividly on my mind that day it was soon after we started when we had climbed some height above tarawera that i looked back to a low range of pine-covered hills leading up to some rocky mountain tops immediately beneath there was a green common with some white specks that was the village of tarawera 
Some bare stony headlands closed in this first gorge. Then looking from the mountain, onto the sides of which the coach was hanging, down the precipice below, the eye on the opposite side followed upwards, upwards from the dense blue mist to the thick vegetation, and beyond to the grey, stony patches of the highest peaks, shot with pinky grey. A bit of bush and flying downhill for eight miles brought us on to the side of another mountain. We saw nothing from here but a sea of grey peaks stretching for miles, their outline marked by the deep shadows in their cleft and pointed sides. Another three hours amid very bare mountain scenery and the country opened out. We were shown the narrow fertile valley leading to the sea while some white dots were pointed out as the houses of Napier. Very far away they looked, some thirty miles from where we were. We had luncheon at Griffith's stables in a one-roomed hut that was entirely papered with pictures from the illustrated and the graphic. It formed a most interesting and thrilling wallpaper, choosing, as had been done, all the most telling national events of the years 81 to 83. We passed the afternoon in fording a swift stream called the Esk, crossing it from one bank to another no less than forty-five times in two hours. Then we hailed with delight the green, verdant pasture lands, the thriving stock and comfortable farmhouses with their rows of willow trees that lay scattered through the valley, glad to see these homelike signs of cultivation after the wild, desolate scenes of the last seven days. Six miles of galloping over a pretty beach road on a tongue of land, formed by the broad basin of Hawke's Bay on the one hand and an arm of inland sea on the other, brought us to the V-shaped wooden bridge. This bridge of three-quarters of a mile bridges over the gap formed by the sea running round the promontory on which Napier stands. We drove along the marshy bit of plain, looking up at the white houses of the town above, and the horses had a long climb before pulling up at the Criterion Hotel. We were very, very tired after the week's coaching, but at the same time we enjoyed the feeling of satisfaction that we had accomplished a most successful expedition to the hot lakes and had seen the greater part of the North Island by coaching 250 miles through it. I sat down to dinner this evening, the only lady amongst some twenty men come in from the town. It could not be helped, as there were no private sitting-rooms. Before we left England, we had been told how rough we should find the hotels in New Zealand. Not only is there this difficulty about a private room, but the bar at all the hotels is placed at the entrance, so that on arriving you often think you have come to a public house. The best of them are not better than our commercial hotel in England, and they will remain so until a greater influx of travellers calls for better accommodation. Much of the same complaint may be made about the means of travelling in New Zealand, especially in the North Island. There are very few railways at present, and communication is maintained by coasting steamers and coaches at the rate of fifty miles per day. No connection between these means or choice of evils is attempted. Saturday, October 4th. A lovely morning for a drive about the town. Napier is such a pretty place, with no level spot within the township. It is all up and downhill, with houses and gardens perched on the high ground. 
placed on the promontory, there is a view of the sea from all sides, and from one a glimpse of the distant range of low mountains, with Hawke's Bay and the harbour below. The white surf is forever rolling heavily in along the beach road. On the low marshy plain, which is being gradually reclaimed from the sea, lie the villages of Clive, Hastings, and Havelock, showing by their names the date of their foundation. The roads are hard and good, but made of limestone, and the glare and dazzling whiteness obliges many to wear blue spectacles. We drove about to see the view from all sides, and then home through the town, stopping at a shop to see some of the native woods then manufactured into furniture. There are so many different kinds of woods, some light and some dark, that a great variety of patterns can be obtained but the mottled wood of the cowrie pine is the prettiest and it is curious to think that this wood is only mottled when diseased there was a repetition of the ordinary at the hotel at one p m clerks and businessmen coming in from the town and directly afterwards we drove down to the wharf and embarked on the tender that was to take us on board the union steamship company's steamer Tarawera. The tender bobbed up and down and shipped water freely. It was most alarming to see the huge billows bearing down on us, and it seemed as if we must be swamped by the surf when going over the bar of the harbour. But when we came alongside the Tarawera, the proceedings to be gone through there were far worse. A gangway was lowered, but the swell carried the tender hither and thither. At one moment the plank touched the deck, and the next would be springing far above us the difficulty was for the passenger to hit the exact moment at which to rush on to the gangway and then to cling on and struggle up it whilst left hanging in mid-air it was a very laughable affair for those looking over the bulwarks but not so for us in the tender and there was a great deal of difficulty as to who would venture first the tarawera like all the company's ships is beautifully fitted with inlaid panels stained glass skylights and plush cushions the social hall is a gallery with seats running round the saloon containing an organ and piano at either end but the cabins and saloon are aft and the proximity of the screw is terrible the union steamship company have a monopoly of the new zealand ports and own a large fleet of fair-side steamers all called by maori names we were coasting along the north island during the night by ten o'clock the next morning, we were alongside the wharf at Wellington, and drove to rooms at the Empire Hotel, previously engaged for us. The outside was dingy and uninviting, and inside not less so, for the people were most civil and anxious to please. Mr. Tolhurst, the manager of the Bank of New Zealand, immediately called for us, and proposed taking us to the Cathedral Church for morning services, and afterwards to his house for luncheon. Sunday is a particularly unfortunate day to arrive anywhere in the colonies, as it is a blank day as it regards domestic service. Our luggage, too, which had come from Auckland in the Southern Cross, was not obtainable. Sir William Drummond Gervois, the governor, came and called during the afternoon, and very kindly insisted upon our removing the following day to Government House. Monday, October 6th we were greeted by a typical wellington day a blowing and blustering wind raising clouds of dust in the streets wellington lies on a strip of land between the hills which rise immediately behind the town and the sea 
for some reason, it seems to be a funnel or trap hole for the wind to blow through on all sides. And they say you can always tell a Wellington man anywhere by the way in which he clutches his hat round the street corners. All the buildings and houses are of wood on account of the frequent shocks of earthquake which visited Wellington at one time. Old inhabitants declare that they remember the time when the earthquakes were of weekly occurrence, and in the earlier days of the settlement they thought seriously of removing it elsewhere. The town has a busy, prosperous look in the principal street, called Lambton Quay, except on Saturday afternoon, when Wellington has a curiously deserted appearance, and everyone goes out into the country. Standing a little above the town are the cluster of government buildings. The government offices form the largest wooden building in the world, with the exception of the sublime port at Stambul. The Houses of Parliament are a Gothic structure, and Government House, with the garden, lies between. This is a large, comfortable house, surmounted by a wooden tower and flagstaff, and when inside it is almost impossible to believe that the large lofty rooms, broad corridors, ballroom, and handsome staircase belong to a wooden tenement. We drove up there in the course of the afternoon, and Lady Gervoise and Miss Gervoise received us most kindly. We were introduced to the staff who consisted of Mr. Pennefather, the private secretary, and Major Eccles, the aide-de-camp. After dinner, the governor went to a meeting for founding a society for prevention of cruelty to animals. C. went with him and made a short speech, being on the council of the society in London. Later, we all went to a Masonic ball. The Grand Master of the Lodge and other Masons in their full insignia receiving the governor at the entrance when we formed into procession to enter the ballroom under the arch of intertwined Masonic wands. C. met the past Deputy Grand Master who had been entertained at the lodge of which he was master the year before last in London, so small as the world. Tuesday, October 7th. A tremendous storm and peal of thunder woke me at 6 a.m. Rain, storm, and wind seemed to be more excessive in their quantities in New Zealand than in England. We went to see Dr. Buller's very perfect collection of Maori curiosities at his house on the terrace. It is one of the finest extent. Portraits of Maori chiefs are hung round the room. There were feather mantles and native mats, the orange-painted staff of a chieftain fringed with the white hair of the native dog, the sharp instrument used for tattooing, and some very beautiful greenstone merimeris. This mary is formed of a piece of greenstone about a foot long and fine down and broadened out to a flat, thin edge. The merit mary is used by the chiefs to split open the skull of a rebellious subject. At Mr. Kuhn's, we found another collection of Maori South Sea curiosities. He is a German and possesses within the recesses of his back premises on Lambton Quay some very wonderful South Sea curios brought to him by German men of war. He has already sold one collection for five hundred pounds, and has sent some curiosities home to the museum at Berlin, against the authorities of which he has a righteous grievance, in which they were never even acknowledged. We saw battle-axes with red and yellow handles, spears, bows, and arrows barbed with poison from decomposed bodies, strings of white and black beads for money, 
wore masks formed of skulls made hideous with splashes of paint and held inside the mouth by an iron bar shells and coconut matting with fringes of the same worn round the waist and considered full dress by the ladies of the south sea islands but the most interesting thing of all was a rough coffin covered with a strip of parchment containing the burnt figure of a south sea islander the skull had the most peculiar pointed formation and was exactly an inch in thickness at the back of the head the body had been stuffed and burnt till the skin was black and hard as brick on the face there was a ghastly grin another day we went to see the museum which dr hector has been mainly instrumental in starting the total absence of mammalia forms a remarkable feature of new zealand the only indigenous animals found being a bat and a small rat there is a fine collection of native birds amongst them the kia or green field parrot this bird was formerly a vegetarian but now it kills and eats sheep sitting on the back of the animal it picks with its long beak till it pierces and reaches the kidney fat which it eats thus killing the sheep the members of both houses of parliament are at wellington the session being in progress the flutter of excitement consequent on three changes of ministry during the last month is just subsiding c met and has had much conversation with mr stout the present premier sir julius vogel the late premier and present colonial treasurer sir george grey and all the other ministers and prominent political men of new zealand one day he was present at an interview between the governor and the two maori representatives in the house who sought his advice as to whether they should go to england and endeavour to obtain the queen's assent to the abolition of the native court and the principle of dealing with the native laws his excellency showed them in the clearest way that the maoris of new zealand had more than equal rights of making and altering laws appointing and deposing governments by their parliamentary representatives and that the home government left the administration of new zealand entirely in the hands of the inhabitants including the maoris on equal terms wellington does not possess so good a newspaper as some of the other places each town and province in new zealand has its own local paper this is necessitated by the distance want of centralization and means of communication for instance it takes seven days by steamer from auckland to wellington these papers are all pretty much alike from auckland to invercargill they have the same cablegrams and english news and the same parliamentary and general intelligence they only differ in local paragraphs we thought the best daily papers were the new zealand herald of auckland and the little times of christchurch and the best weekly paper the canterbury times which is like our queen and field compiled into one thursday october ninth there was a ball at government house in the evening preceded by a large parliamentary dinner about three hundred invitations had been issued and the guests were asked from eight thirty to twelve o'clock long before the hour named carriages were driving up but this was accounted for by the scarcity of flies each having to do duty for many families that night the married women dance as vigorously as the girls and it must be a pleasure giving a dance where all seem to enjoy it so thoroughly monday october thirteenth we said good-bye to the governor and lady jervois 
and left government house with much regret after very pleasant visit of a week the honourable robert stout premier the honourable e richardson minister of public works mr ross mr wakefield and other members of the house of representatives were waiting on the wharf to wish us good-bye and see us on board the waihora anchor was weighed at three p m and we steamed out of the deep natural harbour in which wellington lies through the narrow channel at its entrance into cook strait we were soon driven below by the cold wind and passed a wretched night sleepless and very ill with groans from sea in the berth above and sighs from me in the one below we rose and dressed wearily the next morning and waited about in the social hall with cold blasts coming down through the open skylights till the train at lytton was ready when we walked across to the station snow had fallen during the night and the hills were plentifully besprinkled with white and it was the wind blowing off them which had brought us such bitter cold lytton is the port for christchurch and half an hour in the train passed through a long tunnel brought us thither End of chapter eight part four